you know, it's fine to be skeptical of our institutions, of journalism, um, of, of government servants, but let's not be cynical about them. And if we continue with this cynicism and the endless conspiracy theories and partisanship, we're going to be even more paralyzed. And again, we see it today with coronavirus. It's happening today. So give those who are trying to set out basic facts and come up with solutions and policies a chance. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. Joining me today is David Rode. David is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, currently the online news director for The New Yorker magazine. His career has included coverage of Bosnia in the 1990s, South Asia in the first years of this century, and more recently, he has turned his attention to the United States government, and that's what we're here to talk about today. David Rode has just published In Deep, the FBI, the CIA, and the Truth About America's Deep State. And it's a book that's very dear to my interest because it covers the many things that have occupied the work of the Center on National Security over the years, including presidential powers, balance of powers, secrecy, and accountability. And so I could talk to you for a year, but we don't have that time. I just want to point to one thing before we get started, which is that you put the word truth in the title, which was a very interesting writer's choice. And I wondered if you wanted to just talk about that a little bit, because it stands out and it invokes a sense that this book is going to be about more than a narrative about our political establishment. So can I just ask you about the decision to include the word truth? First of all, thank you. It's, it's just so kind of you. And, and I'm so thrilled that you, you like the book. So I worried the truth was maybe too simplistic. That happens when you, know, you work at The New Yorker. Um, it was a bit of a play on words because truth is such a thing that we battle over, but the book was facts. I wanted to tell a factual story. I didn't want to say in the facts about the deep state that, that didn't quite have a nice ring to it. And I wanted to talk about the way both sides sort of perceive this huge challenge of how do we protect ourselves with these intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies, but also control them and govern them and make sure they don't carry out abuses. And there's this incredibly rich history. Many generations of Americans have tried to solve this problem. It's not just us. Yeah. And that's one of the wonderful things about the book is that the first half of it basically is a history of what is often referred to as the deep state. And then the second half of it is about how it's playing out in this administration in this particular period of time. It's everything you think you're supposed to know, but that you didn't bother to learn or didn't know in enough detail, or the dots hadn't been connected. And so, you know, maybe it's the historian in me, but I think it's more than that. It's just a, a wonderful expose of, of the history leading up to now. And so I thought it might be nice for our listeners if you could just talk about the origins of the term 
the deep state. Sure. And on a positive note, a good thing about this era beyond our polarization and the pandemic, you know, we're living in a, an era that is a civics lesson. It is about like American democracy and how the different branches of government should work together. And, you know, can government servants, you know, be apolitical? So to get to the term deep state, you know, it was used for decades by political scientists to talk about Turkey, you know, the military there and the sense there that that military was blocking the development of democracy in the country. Some applied it to Egypt's military. And the person I found who first applied the term deep state to the American government was a UC Berkeley professor, Peter Dale Scott. He wrote a book in 2007 called The Road to 9-11. And we'll talk about this more. So he came at this issue of an out of control or dangerous government from a liberal perspective. Liberals tend to use the term military industrial complex for what they fear. And that would be a cabal of military contractors and generals who are leading the country into endless war. And I talked to Scott, and after he read his book, there was an amazing confluence. He was invited to do an interview on Alex Jones's far-right conspiracy-mongering radio show and website. And that's where you run into the kind of conservative fear of the deep state. And the term that I think reflects the conservative view is the administrative state. And that's an ever-growing federal government that's constantly invading our lives and taking away our rights. So it's a fear on the left and the right. And President Trump has made the term deep state now ubiquitous in the United States. It's amazing how quickly it's happened. One of the things that you point out in the historical portions of the book are giving some legitimacy to the claims that our intelligence agencies, our uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, and others have usurped their powers in ways that there's been a continual back and forth of how much can we check these powers and when it's not enough, it's like an evergreen conversation. And so what I really wanted to ask you is what happened with the protections that were put in place by the church and pike committees, which we know so well, established the regime for controlling gathering of foreign information and a variety of other things. And what happened? Why do those restraints seem no longer to be uh, working today or Am I wrong? Are they working? I think that they're working to a certain extent. And, you know, one of the big changes, as you mentioned, the book starts out with the church committee and their investigation. So it was presidents using the FBI and CIA improperly throughout the Cold War in the 60s and 70s that they exposed. But it was also the FBI and CIA operating as kind of rogue organizations outside the control of elected officials. I think the church reforms has stopped that dynamic. What, what we've seen since then are problems with what the FBI and CIA have done. But in most instances, and I think virtually all instances, they've been at the direction of presidents. You know, the book goes through the history. The first sort of test of the system um, of oversight is the Iran-Contra scandal. And that's when, as many listeners will know in this podcast, one of the reforms was that uh, in the past, uh, covert programs could sometimes involve simply a conversation between a president and a CIA director. So Ford and Carter both put through executive orders that required written covert action findings. Again, your audience is going to know this very well, that would go to members of Congress and also go to the leaders of the newly created uh, House and Senate Intelligence Committees, which came out in the late 70s. And so essentially the Reagan administration, Oliver North famously, sells weapons to Iran, diverts the funds to the Contras, there is one finding that's actually signed by Reagan, and it's held in the White House for weeks. Uh, and most importantly, Bill Casey, the CIA director, lies to Congress, doesn't tell them about this covert program. 
And the amazing thing politically is that there's a, you know, we remember it because we're old. <laughs> but Speak for yourself. <laughs> well, true. But there's big hearings and it's, it's Watergate-like, it's national hearings, the Iran-Contra select committee, dramatic moments. And instead of Oliver North sort of saying, I'm sorry, I, I repent, you know, the kind of regret of John Dean during Watergate, uh, Oliver North says, I did the right thing. I've got to confront terrorism and the president has the right to do what he feels is needed to protect the nation. And we don't, you know, need to inform Congress. And then the people who take up that argument is a very familiar figure, but then a representative in Congress, Dick Cheney. And Cheney worked in the Ford White House, as many listeners will know. So did Don Rumsfeld. And there was a feeling in, you know, in conservative circles, even when these reforms were being enacted in the 70s, that they were going too far and curtailing the power of the president to protect the country. Cheney loses that battle. Republicans, Warren Rudman in particular from New Hampshire, sides with Democrats. Uh, Daniel Inouye, who's an amazing figure, it was a great writing about him. They, there's a consensus that no, the system should hold. The president has to inform Congress. There has to be oversight of the FBI and CIA by Congress and the courts. And that sort of holds through 9-11. Yeah. And one of the people that you focus on is Edward Levy. And I think it's interesting that you talk about him as the antidote to uh, Watergate, but really as the antidote to a country that thinks that its institutions, and particularly the Department of Justice, has been compromised and has been used for political ends. And I guess the question is, can you tell our audience a little bit about him? So Edward Levy is sort of one of the heroes of the book. And it was, again, I wasn't an expert in all this, but it was amazing to talk to career Justice Department officials who revere him and what a figure he is in the legal community. He was the president leader of Chicago, uh, assumed to be you know, a political conservative, but he had this deep respect for the rule of law. And he came in and set up the model for a sort of modern attorney general. He vastly reduced the amount of domestic political investigations the FBI was doing across the United States under Hoover. You know, it was everything from the John Birch Society on the right being infiltrated and smeared by the FBI to obviously and famously and horribly Martin Luther King and other civil rights organizations. And he dramatically reduced those investigations by setting up strict guidelines for when they could be carried out. Uh, there was this new court, the FISA court, as your listeners will know, and as you've already referred to, you know, he embraced that court. He agreed that there should be a judge improving surveillance warrants being used by the FBI and the Justice Department. And what was amazing was that he finished his tenure and he was uh, so scrupulous in terms of being nonpartisan that he was praised by Antonin Scalia, then a conservative legal scholar, and Ted Kennedy, yeah. you know, then a super liberal member of the Senate. And everybody just felt that he increased the public's trust in government. Uh, one little amazing anecdote is that the Carter administration actually puts senior FBI officials on trial for doing black bag operations, breaking into people's homes during the Vietnam War and doing illegal wiretapping. One of them is actually the source for Woodward and Bernstein, Deep Throat, Mark Felt. And he's actually convicted by a jury of violating American civil rights. Um, and again, this tension happens, though. Ronald Reagan comes into office and he immediately pardons those officials because he feels that the executive branch the law enforcement agencies are being held back. 
so yes, Levy's a hero and an amazing figure in this history. Let's come forward to current times. And I will ask you eventually, so you can just think about who our heroes are now. But let's just start with where we are in terms of the conversation you're rolling out. For one thing, let's talk a little bit about presidential powers and the understanding of the presidency. You talk a lot in the book about the investiture of expansive powers in the president and how this has grown over the last four decades and that the champions of it, whether it's Cheney or who we will come to, William Barr, have been a a persistent theme for a long time and incremental gains have been made. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you use 9-11 as a threshold point earlier. Since 9-11, we've seen the presidency grow in power consistently with some nips and tucks by President Obama, but the actual sense that there's an inviability to the presidency seems to continue to gain traction. Do you think that's right? And if so, do you see any way of pulling back on that? In an odd way, our political polarization is leading us to back a more powerful president. So when my side's president is in office, and that obstructionist Congress isn't doing what that president was elected to do, you know, the president should just take the actions needed through executive orders. That's really dangerous for democracy. It's really corrosive to our political and social fabric. And it's reached a new level, obviously, in the current era. But to me, it's interesting, Barr is a major character in the book. And he lays out a case, you know, very bluntly. Many of your listeners may remember this, but in a speech Last fall to the Federalist Society, you know, Barr said openly, the presidency, the executive branch is the most important branch of government, and it should be more powerful. He argued that it has outperformed the other branches in moments of crisis in the United States. When we faced natural disaster or war or economic depression, it was decisive presidents that saved the union. And he's very open about that. The danger, though, is that is it going too far? You know, and I think Bill Barr, you know, believes this sincerely. He's fought for this his entire career. Yeah. He's doing it with Donald Trump, who I question some of the methods and messaging and things that Trump is alleging about how government functions that sort of combining with Barr's philosophy, I think, in dangerous ways. Yeah, I mean, and and Barr, of course, takes it back to the founding period, saying that it was in the founding, that it wasn't about fear of kingly powers. It was about fear of the legislative body's powers, which is one of the two struggles you see going on in the checks and balances. And you talk about both. Let's take them separately in terms of Congress's ability at this point in time to check the president. Can it happen or has the end run around Congress through executive orders and through a variety of other kinds of policy decrees? Has it been minimized? Has it been uh, neutralized? How would you describe what's happened to Congress and its powers? I'd say some of the fault lies with Congress, members of Congress themselves. It's, it's become such partisan warfare that each side, um, I'm sure I know some would say Republicans did it more so in the Obama era, but it's, it's sort of using oversight as a, as a weapon, a political weapon. You just haven't had a big investigation like the church reforms, you know, an Iran-Contra committee. The 9-11 commission would be the closest productive investigation, but that was an outside nonpartisan effort. And both parties sort of go easy on their own president when they're in power, and that's not good for our democracy. Right now, Barr is helping Trump flout congressional oversight in a way we've never seen. I mean, it was extraordinary that the White House simply 
is now refusing to present witnesses before Congress about everything from the impeachment, Congress's ultimate power, to right now in pandemic. The Trump administration is not sending witnesses to any House committee because they view it as illegitimate. And so I don't see Congress as an effective check on the president, at least right now with the breakdown in the House and the Senate. And we'll have an election and maybe that will clear things up, but it's our government is not functioning as it should be. And the courts? Barr feels that the judicial branch has grown too powerful. He you know, complained of federal judges on the West Coast blocking Trump's travel ban. Uh, as a social conservative, he gave a speech at Notre Dame Law School saying that all these liberal court decisions had gone too far. You know, social change should come about through majority votes in Congress, which is a legitimate argument. But then he went farther and said that there was, you know, the secular elite of the country was waging war on Americans who want to practice their religion. And I, I thought that was an overstatement in getting into the culture wars. That was not something Edward Levy would say as attorney general. Just this week, there are the arguments before the Supreme Court about whether you know, a House committee should have access to the president's tax returns and should Cy Vance, uh, Manhattan district attorney investigating hush payments uh, during the campaign by the Trump organization, you know, should Cy Vance, should local prosecutors have access to the president's tax returns? Justice Department lawyers sent by Bill Barr joined Trump's personal lawyers in arguing that this should not be allowed. This will be endless, pointless, partisan investigations that will distract the president. And it was fascinating. It was a direct quote from one of the Justice Department lawyers, weaken the presidency. And that's echoing Bill Barr's intense focus on weakening the presidency. Even the dropping of the charges against Flynn, uh, you'll hear it in Barr's comments. It's that he doesn't believe in special prosecutors. He's talked about this before, but he felt that the Mueller investigation was, again, an illegitimate infringement on the presidency. He felt that the Trump-Russia investigation weakened the presidency, and this is a danger he feels for the country. It's interesting that they keep wanting to redo, reconsider, recast the Mueller investigation, undo the Mueller investigation. Sometimes I kind of wonder, maybe they should have just let it you know, have an end point. But instead, it seems like it's going to color this entire presidency and largely at their continued rethink, recast. Do you think that's possible? And I would say that's President Trump. And look, on the investigation, and I'm sure you've covered this in detail before, you look, mistakes were made. There was problems, you know, with the, the last two FISA applications regarding Carter Page. I've kind of come down with Horowitz's findings and in the inspector general. And it was, you know, the FBI lawyer who changes the email to change the meaning where Carter Page was talking to the CIA about his meetings with Russian officials, and the, the meeting of an email was reversed to say he was not talking to the CIA. That's outrageous. But that's not the same as what President Trump has alleged, which is a coup and the wiretapping of Trump Tower. And it's Trump's rhetoric and his, you know, battle. He's a counterpuncher and he's very successful to win the political fight, to reverse the narrative, you know, that Trump let's say, I mean, and I, I think the Mueller report was very accurate that, you know, no collusion, but Trump welcomed the help of Russia. He publicly called for Russia to find Hillary Clinton's emails as they were being hacked and released. Flynn, you know, attended a dinner with Vladimir Putin, is making these phone calls with foreign officials without informing the Obama administration. 
there was a lot of reckless behavior by Trump and his aides that drew the attention of the FBI. And it was a proper investigation. Mueller seemed to have been kind of down the middle, frustrated many liberals. But this is going to get relitigated because Donald Trump wants the narrative that he's the victim of a deep state conspiracy as he faces re-election in six months. Now, I hear you trying to be fair and balanced <laughs> about this. And I think that's interesting. You know, we can have this conversation again in two years when we yes. see more. But I think you're trying to, you know, uh, articulate what different parties and both sides are thinking. But there still is this persistent sense of misinformation, disinformation, and bad dealing on the part of the Trump campaign. And now the Trump administration, at least tell me, is that something you would disagree with? Is that No, I, I, and you know, the president is grossly exaggerating what happened for political gain. It's incredibly corrosive to people's trust in our government. Bill Barr has helped Trump obliterate post-Watergate and post-church reform norms that were supposed to prevent presidents and attorneys generals and even intelligence chiefs from using the FBI and CIA from political gain. All that's just been wiped out and it's been easier and faster, I think, than many people expected. And the president is wrong. There is no deep state. I conclude in the end that there's no evidence of any kind of organized plot. I had members of the Trump administration tell me they agreed the president was exaggerating. Uh, there are bureaucrats who fight for turf and leak stories to get their budgets higher and get their priorities met. But there is no evidence of some organized, politically motivated plot against President Trump or Obama or both Bushes. And it's a conspiracy theory. and. Trump has used the same tactic, the same playbook. Stephen Gillers, uh, the NYU legal ethics professor, talked to me about this. You know, he basically uses conspiracy theories to discredit rival sources of power or sources of information. So if you're a government official who contradicts the president's political messaging or claim, you're a member of the deep state. If you're a journalist who writes a story, you know, that contradicts what the president says or calls him out on a lie, it's fake news. And if you're Robert Mueller, it's a witch hunt. And that is astonishingly corrosive for our democracy. It's very dangerous. And I think he and Barr, and this is a line from the book, but under the guise of stopping a coup that doesn't exist, Trump is fundamentally changing the balance of powers between the three branches of government that has been a foundation of our democracy since this country's founding. And that is incredibly dangerous. It sounds dangerous. Uh, a couple of just little things that I want to talk about that are somewhat in the weeds. One of the things that you repeatedly refer to in the book are the dangers of too much secrecy. Not that there aren't national security and other kinds of concerns that warrant secrecy, but that since, and I would argue, and I think you might agree, that since 9-11, the category of what is allowed to be secret under the rubric of national security has grown, broadened, and just been used in a lot of different ways that have kept evidence and public discussion away. Because we've kept evidence away from the public and discussion, therefore, out of the public domain. And so one of the ways of thinking about secrecy or transparency one piece of it is FISA. And the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court exists for collecting intelligence and for finding out who are spies, who might be terrorists, you know, people who want to compromise our national security. 
And yet there's a way in which FISA keeps coming up. It came up all the time during the post 9-11 years in investigations. It's coming up in the, particularly with Carter Page, but it's coming up in these investigations into what the Trump administration did or didn't do wrong. And you make the point, or you suggest, that there really do need to be reforms in FISA. Yet we see now that it's having trouble in, in, in Congress, trying to figure out what the next step and the next stage of FISA is. So two questions for you. One is, Tell us a little bit about the robustness or not over time of FISA. And two, do you have recommendations for where the legislation of FISA should go? I'm not an expert on the legal entries of it, but what was interesting about doing the book was that I had national security officials admit that secrecy was backfiring on them. Uh, one of the characters in the book is James Baker. He was the general counsel of the FBI under Jim Comey. Prior to that, for years, he was known as Mr. FISA. He was the primary person running the Justice Department office that would put together the FISA applications together with FBI agents. And he told me this amazing story of right after 9-11, he is not told of the warrantless mass surveillance that George W. Bush has ordered directly without telling the FISA court. And he actually has a, an FBI colleague one day, a few weeks after 9-11, approach him on the street outside the Justice Department, right, where the FBI and, and Justice Department are across the street from each other, and tell him, quote, something spooky is going on. And, you know, Baker starts seeing strange things in the applications, and he, he eventually demands to be told what's happening, is told, and Baker refuses to submit further FISA applications until the FISA court judges are told of Stellar Wind, of the secret eavesdropping program. The chief judge is told and doesn't object to it. So of all the mechanisms, um, well, I would argue that the House Intelligence Committee has become deeply dysfunctional, but I would say of the institutions created by the church reforms, the FISA court has performed the worst. I would argue for more transparency. I totally agree with you. A theme of the book is that abuses occur when there is a lack of transparency and a concentration of power. That can be a president and an administration or a court. And I don't know the specifics, but I think if the intelligence community doesn't come up with reforms of their own, and the FISA court itself, this is going to continue to be a political football. And you're going to have the amazing alliance of Ron Wyden, the liberal senator, and Rand Paul, the conservative libertarian, just calling for an end to the FISA court. So I, I don't know if there's a way to open up the process more to outside lawyers, to the press, but it is too secretive now. More detailed reports on what's happening internally. I know the numbers are released, but the FISA court judges should realize there is a total lack of faith in the public and among politicians in that court, and they have to change it. Interesting. One of the quotes from the book that relates to the pervasive secrecy and the growth of, of increasingly pervasive secrecy, which comes back to your focus on conspiracy in the deep state, is blanket secrecy fuels blanket suspicion. And I think that's another side of it, which is that there is distrust, as you mentioned, but as you also indicate throughout the book, there's just a sense of any narrative can take hold in the absence of a legitimate narrative that is not constantly being discredited and contested. So when I, that's when I asked you about the word truth. <laughs> I'm very glad you put it in the title of the book because I think it very much underscores the fact that we're dealing here with something that does take on a more ethereal, 
I know you say facts and truth, but no, truth is something that has a, a larger sense and a larger sense of buy-in. And so it is a battle over the truth, but it's not just a battle over the facts, right? I mean, how yes, do we assess? How, totally do we judge, how do we narrate? So anyway, so I really like that word. <laughs> and, and just right now with the pandemic, you know, truth or facts or, or reality, whatever term we want to use, you know, there was a, a poll recently showing that both liberals and conservatives think that the number of people dying that's being reported, the number of people dying from coronavirus is exaggerated or is false. Liberals think that the numbers are actually higher than what the government is saying and conservatives thinks it's lower. So if we can't agree on sort of basic facts, we can't come up with public policies to survive a pandemic, to prevent terrorist attacks, to prevent, you know, abuse of government powers. And that's what's so dangerous now. And just the last thing I'll say is all of this is exacerbated in the digital age. Yeah. A, the government can collect more personal information from us than ever before. Uh, private companies are now, I had an, uh, an ex-NSA official say, hey, it's private companies that are collecting more information about the American public now than, than the government. And that's not closely regulated. And then again, in the digital age, truth and fact it is harder to sort it out because conspiracy theories are, you know, a half dozen keystrokes away. Uh, and the media is not perfect and everything else, but I, I, I can get sued if I edit or, you know, write a story in the New Yorker that's wrong and slanders somebody. You know, a crazy thing with our laws right now is that Twitter, Facebook, Google have no legal liability for anything that they publish on their platforms. And this can't continue, but we have, we're so paralyzed politically that we haven't created rules of the road for this hyper-partisan digital era of conspiracy theory. But I'm optimistic <laughs> that <laughs> well, we can. Gonna get to, we are going to get to the optimism part, but I just wanted to, to mention one other thing about the book. On the other side of what's changed with all this new technology, et cetera, et cetera, is the issue of surveillance and technology and how that will affect how we think about the government's ability to exceed the constitutional protections that are given to us. And you had a quote from Frank Church, who foresaw this technological growth and what it could mean, who said, it's an abyss from which there is no return. Did I get that right? Yes. And Church is one of the heroes of the book. And he and John Tower, the Republican from Texas, carried out a largely bipartisan investigation. And so I, I laud them. But Look, the reality is for reporters and for politicians, conspiracy theory travels farther and faster on cable TV and, and online. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think, a reckoning in journalism. You know, we've had our core business model, the newspaper business model collapse. And so there's a lot of pressure on journalists now to, to go for the more exciting conclusion or headline. And then the web is just, you know, I don't know how you govern it. I'm not saying you should censor the web, but you're just right. I'm, I'm agreeing with you absolutely that we, as a, whether it's journalists or, or politicians or experts like you, you know, we need sort of new rules of the road for the digital age. And Church did it. They created new rules of the, <laughs> rules of the road, you know, after a terrible, terrible abuses and crises and division in the 1960s and 70s. So that's, you know, our challenge today. And I, I'm confident. We can do it. We, we have to do it. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to flesh that out a little bit, the confident part, because uh, the way this uh, podcast always ends is tell me something hopeful. 
So you asked me really about the heroes and thank you for giving me time to think about it. Here's a very easy one. Dr. Tony Fauci. You know, he's emerged as the sort of perfect figure in terms of, you know, a clear threat that's killed more than 80,000 Americans at this point. Someone who pulls their punches and doesn't try to needlessly needle people or, you know, win an argument. Um, I thought that the um, impeachment witnesses, Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, Fiona Hill, Bill Taylor, uh, did an admirable, admirable job of uh, the way they comported themselves addressing this question of can government servants be apolitical? I mean, clearly everybody has personal biases, but I was very impressed by how they, you know, they strive to not take the bait from either side politically. And again, those hearings were in a way, and the way they comported themselves was sort of a civics uh, lesson. I would say I have one more hero, but it doesn't end on, on quite a hopeful note. But um, one of the characters of the book and one of the heroes of the book is Tom O'Connor. He's a, a, a career FBI agent, you know, a cop from Northampton, Massachusetts, who joins the FBI. He's suddenly sent to uh, Kenya to investigate the Al-Qaeda bombings of the U.S. Embassy there. He's sent to investigate the bombing of the USS Cole. The premier terrorist acts before 9-11. Yes, absolutely. And then on 9-11, he you know, sees smoke coming from the Pentagon and drives there. And he and other FBI agents spend weeks and they, they collect more than 2,000 bags of, of human remains there. Um, he continues this amazing career. He goes to Iraq and, and investigates and helps prosecute Blackwater security guards who, you know, kill civilians in a famous incident in a traffic circle in Baghdad. He also investigates, you know, what are now called racially motivated violent extremists, you know, in the U.S. And he becomes the head of the FBI agents union. He's at the hearing when John Stewart chastises members of Congress about not helping first responders, including FBI agents who've got cancer. So Tom retired this 9-11 after an amazing career. Um, he said his job was, uh, think this through. he said his job was investigating evil in all its forms. Um, but he was really sort of disgusted with our political class and also in a way disgusted with the media too. I asked him at one point, you know, what are you going to do now that you're retired? Would you ever think of, you know, running for office and, you know, trying to uh, clean up this mess? And, and he, he reflected this kind of alienation inside the FBI and the CIA with sort of both political parties. They're, you know, both organizations internally, they're divided just like the rest of the country. Um, and I said, well, you know, come on, would you run for office? And he said, no, I want to do something that has meaning. There are other people running for office. You know, there is a new generation sort of battling it out as needed and as they should. But it's a dangerous sign when Tom O'Connor feels that level of alienation. From our democracy. So the hopeful message is, <laughs> so I'll just say that it's it, possible. There are people in the U.S. government, FBI agents, CIA operatives, public health officials, diplomats who are trying to do the right thing. Some of them are incompetent. Some of them are politically biased. Some of them, you know, fight for turf and budget and all those things. But I'd urge people, you know, who hear all these things, uh, conspiracy theories, you know, on, online, if you're a conservative and you don't see some amazing conspiracy theory on the news pages of the Wall Street Journal, it is probably not true. Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News and he owns the Wall Street Journal. It's a deeply conservative you know, editorial page. The journal will get sued 
if it publishes things that are false. You know, and if you're a liberal and you believe some crazy conspiracy theory about Trump and it's not on the news pages of the New York Times, don't believe it. You know, it's fine to be skeptical of our institutions, of journalism, um, of, of government servants, but let's not be cynical about them. And if we continue with this cynicism and the endless conspiracy theories and partisanship, we're going to be even more paralyzed. And again, we see it today with coronavirus. It's happening today. So give those who are trying to set out basic facts and come up with solutions and policies a chance. Excellent. And the other part of what you were also saying is, and people can run for office. Yeah, people can run generation. for office. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> you know uh, run for office. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you know, post on Twitter, uh, you know, yeah. debate ideas, um, you know, and respect people who have different perspectives than you. There's such a sense that if you, if you disagree with me, you're either a moron or unpatriotic. And I accept people's opinions and try to be more tolerant of, um, try to accept basic facts. I'm writing this down right now. Um, <laughs> David Rode, thank you so much for joining me today. Everybody should read his book, In Deep, the FBI, the CIA, and the Truth About America's Deep State. And it's really a lesson in civics, as you said, a discussion about American civics, where it's been and where it's headed. So thank you very much. Thank you, Karen, and thank you for all the work the center does. And again, past generations have met challenges like this one, and uh, we will meet the one in front of us. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at Center on National Security. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.